All right, we are here with Lee Vartanian. Uh, we work a bunch with Lee and a lot of our salt climbing stuff for federal and DOD. Uh, he is our, one of our go-to guys for, for climbing. He's climbed from Yosemite to Western North Carolina, went to school, got his outdoor leadership degree, and spent a large portion of your life as a granola-eating, leave-no-trace, patchouli, oil-wearing, hippie climbing guide. And a uh, little time uh, working with uh, Christian youth groups, I believe, too, which is odd with anger management issues that we've seen from you on time to times, especially in the rumbling bald area. But uh, real quick, Lee, fill us in on the gaps as far as, as your climbing and, and your kind of evolution in that world. Yeah, you forgot I also wear Chacos. He does. He does. All the time. And, so, he's like, and he's a cop, which is even adds a layer of complexity. You supposed to say that. Yeah, my bad. So yeah, I started climbing when I was 15. A buddy of mine got me into it. Fell in love with the difficulty of the sport, the aesthetics of climbing, and uh, the difficulty involved. So started out in Florida, of all places, climbing. A lot and of peaks. Yeah. So, yeah, you guys, Florida's known for its great granite. <laughs> so yeah, but started climbing. Uh, there were no climbing gyms in the area. There was a private school that had a wall, a little indoor wall. So spent my uh, evenings after school breaking into that gymnasium just down the street from where I lived and uh, climbing without ropes. Did that for a while. Climbing gym opened in the area. Uh, it was my first job that I had when I was 16 as a route setter there. Uh, continued just climbing as hard as I could, focused on difficulty, didn't really care about anything else other than climbing harder and harder routes. Went on to compete, it was nationally ranked for a while, and then um, got into climbing outdoors as well. So climbing outdoors, I've been everywhere from California to North Carolina to the new, of the gorge, just a whole bunch of, whole bunch of different places. Um, a lot of the places now are areas that are more developed than they were back then, because I've been climbing for a while. I'm not gonna tell you how old I am, but I've been climbing for 17 years. Yeah, so. you're like nine years younger than me, so whatever. Man, I just I feel old. Yeah, so uh, just climbing basically just consumed my life. That was everything I did, um, and I'd always been an odd oddball in the climbing community. I'd always challenged everything that I was told. Um, I wanted to know why I wasn't content with just doing tying that knot that somebody told me to tie just because they told me to tie it. I wanted to know the reasoning behind it. If there wasn't a good reason, then I wanted to find something else. And so made a lot of enemies, also made a lot of friends doing that, and uh, just kind of worked from there. Um, got my degree in outdoor education, um, became a certified climbing guide with the American Mountain Guide Association. Um, for a while, worked in North Carolina's Outward Bound School up at their Table Rock Base Camp, and then, uh, yeah, then worked at a climbing gym. So basically, climbing is all I've done for the last 17 years. This stuff that I do most recently now, those, like you said, working with smaller groups of folks that have more specific skill sets and that are used to thinking outside the box. And I think with that, the other question we have, and this, this has come up, and we've actually spent kind of a considerable amount of time talking with each other and with, with other groups of people about that, is we work, have had a chance to work with groups from the federal government to Department of Defense and things like that to do special operations and they're technically climbing teams or vertical access teams. And we see a lot of people really maybe put too much emphasis on the climbing side in an unrealistic fashion instead of looking looking at their job for what it is. And, and by that, you know, if they go up and do some climbing trips out west or Red Rock or anything like that, wearing climbing shoes and a chalk bag and a full rack and, you know, no shirt or, you know, being able to do that doesn't necessarily template operational success for when they are out on a mission set where maybe it's Solomon's and or Merrill's that they're climbing in and they've got kit. They may have a weapon system, so whether they're hunting a fugitive or, or some other 
bad guy moving through there that that doesn't necessarily template really realistic expectations for what they're doing and i know we've had conversations about that what are your what are your feelings on that yeah so really up to this point in on the training side of things that involve vertical vertical access rope rescue uh, most everything to date has come from a background in um, one of the climbing games and that's a term that I like to use because there are different types of climbing, different forms of type climbing. You have sport climbing, trad climbing, aid climbing, big wall climbing, bouldering, ice climbing, mixed climbing. You got all different types of climbing. And for each of those types of climbing, those are games because there's a set of rules that apply to each one of those that doesn't necessarily apply to the others. The problems that I have with that... And I'm going to interrupt you real quick because you jumped way ahead of what we were... Oh, I, I was. I was gonna, we're going to talk about climbing games later. Lee. What are we talking about? I'm just playing with you. But what are we talking about now? Anyway, so real quick for the, for the people who are listening. So we're referencing, you can pull it up off the internet. It's actually a really good PDF, I think, that you can get off there called Games Climbers Play by Tejeda and Flores. And it was written, what, 1967 in yeah. Ascent magazine. Yep. And so they outlined those those disciplines that you did and, and actually wrote about how rules are created in this so if you're a bouldering guy right there's no ropes there's this there's that where if you move into sport or trad and things like that they create these rules on it and if you break those rules as we've seen from time to time where people have gotten ostracized in these communities at el cap or things like that and not allowed back and is there are certain rules that that kind of are the unwritten rules that that people have to abide by for each discipline all the way up to you know doing everest where most rules are thrown out the thrown out the door because any way you can make it up it's not necessarily cheating so continue on with what you're saying Lee. are we gonna have to like flip that back now no 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 we're, we're just we're just rolling sorry just, off just two guys talking climbing just right talking that's about it ropes. right just it's looking not, at each other talking nothing's awkward at all um yeah so you know it's at some point at one point in climbing's history it was enough just to get to the top of something you didn't have equipment, you didn't have gear, you didn't have ropes, you didn't have specialized shoes, you didn't have pitons. At some point, people just saw a peak and wanted to climb it. They wanted to access that environment. And doing that over time, when you end up having all these different advances in technology, so you started having you know triple laid ropes, natural fiber ropes, and you go to gold line and all these different types of ropes that have come into existence, they started tying them to themselves. And so now you could climb something that you may not be able to get up. And if you fall, you don't die. Natural selection does not run its course, and you're able to try again and get up and try again. And there's some strength to that, but the weakness that I like to talk about a bit is the reliance on that gear then, the reliance on the gear and then the reliance on all these different types of rules that are set for the use of the gear. Because when they when climbing gear was brought into the picture and the advances in technology came into play, people had to then add limitations to different types of climbing. So when everything, at, some, at one point, everything was traditionally climbed. And by trad climbing, I mean climbing with mechanical placements that you put in the rock and you take back out when you're done. But then bolts came in. And so now you see people, you know, rappelling down a face they may not be able to climb, sport, you know, drilling all these holes in the rock and putting stainless steel bolts and hardware in that now allow you to climb up it and clip in. And so the rules for that had to change. And so with each of these evolutions, and, and most of it comes from the technology um, evolving, additional rules have been applied. And now what we see is people trying to take all of these rules and apply them to vertical access, rescue, you know, a tactical environment. And they don't all, we don't play by those rules. And it, sometimes it can be influenced by whatever you were taught. And from that guy, 
that's that's gold, man. And we see that in the rescue community all the time. So I learned this from this guy. I respect this guy. So this is what we're going to do. And sometimes that circle gets pushed through a square peg. So, you know, when we look at, let's say, the assault climber, the, the vertical access person for, for, for a team that is moving through either an urban area or a, a mountainous area. What do those rules look like? You know what I'm saying is is now it looks yeah. like there's a new creation of, of rules when you look at that that evolution that, that was written in 1967. We've got guys that are climbing buildings, climbing bridges, getting access in asymmetric ways. We have guys that are climbing, not for the sport of climbing, climbing for access or for an assault or for a recce group. And those rules, pretty much you can't live within those rules, right? You're not taking a rack. You, you know, you're carrying a weapon system, sat gear, you know, comp stuff. You, you, it's a different game. So what, are the, what would that new game look like if it was just badass climbing? Yeah, so to try and think of it, you have to, you got to start thinking outside the box. So like, like you're saying, you know, you got, you were taught a certain way by somebody who was taught that way by somebody else. At some point, what they were told was bought wholesale. And what we're saying is you can't just buy even what we're saying wholesale. You have to challenge the thought. You have to challenge the things you're being told. And through that challenging process, the hope is that you find the best or the better of system or technique uh, to use. So I guess an example of that would be, you know, somebody who's doing a top rope belay. Typically, you got somebody doing a top rope belay. They're doing it within the context of a client and a guide, or a guide and their client. And so that determines the, the method of which you belay. You may belay from the anchor itself, or you may belay off the person. Um, if I'm the guide, then I'm going to tend to belay the person coming up the second, my client, off the anchor. And the reasoning for that is because I like to be able to get down to see him. If I have to do a rescue, it's already pre-rigged. There's some reasoning for that, but it's within that context. When that person comes up, the second comes up, and he's getting ready to, guide, to belay the third, the other client up, I'm probably going to have him belay off of his harness. The reason I'm, I'm doing that is because of the tactile response that's involved. It's going to make him pay more attention because he can physically feel the guy on the other end of the rope tugging on his harness. Does that mean that that's the proper thing to do every time when you're belaying a group of operators up a, up a cliff face? No. So you got to take into consideration who you're working with, the organic assets you have, and then apply the best system to that. And the answer is going to be different just about every time. You may use a dead man's uh, anchor that you'd, that you'd see that would be common in canyoneering, and that may be the only anchoring point you have. If you're just trying to apply a traditional approach um, to climbing, you would know that you need to have at least three artificial pieces of protection to consider that an effective anchor. Well, who made that up? Like, who said that's the standard? Who said that has to be done? And if we're teaching that, then we're doing a disservice to those folks that we're teaching because we're hammering into their heads that you don't have an effective anchor if you don't have three artificial pieces of pro, like a spring-loaded camming system. Now, does that mean that one cam in a solidly placed crack can't hold you and your team? No. And that's the part that we're trying to challenge. So a 17 kilonewton rated cam hanging off a cliff face is plenty to hold you and your team up. But if you're taking the climbing rules from traditional climbing, multi-pitch traditional climbing, then you'd be sunk. You wouldn't have that. It wouldn't be an option for you to climb. And so it really does take the lid off of things, um, and it really does open up an entire new uh, environment for you to be able to think of accessing. Right, and, and I think there's a, there's kind of a movement in a lot of places, too, to 
to go get your guide cert and things like this. And this is for people that specialize in rescue, which you bring up a good point is when you're learning that, you, you, a lot of your techniques and a lot of the, the mindset that you're learning is to bring your client up. And that client could be overweight couple from New York that's first time out in the Tetons. And really your job is just to basically keep them alive, get them successfully up to the top and down so they can take pictures. And as you say, eat some wine and cheese up top, take some pictures and, and get down safely. And it's not an executable capability. You're, you're learning to guide with so many constrictions on you as if assuming that whoever you're with has no operational background or, or climbing experience because they're paying you to get you there and get us down safely so we can go back and short pictures to everybody. Yeah. So when you look at that, we kind of talked a little bit about a lot of the techniques and, and not to bag on some of the classic books of Freedom of the Hills and, and things like that, but th there's quite a few antiquated techniques that you people are being taught currently that we see quite a bit that actually can be dated back decades and decades, yet in that same time period, there's been a, just almost a straight up trajectory of equipment evolution and technology to where everything's become smaller, lighter, much more r robust and, and resilient in bad conditions. And we see, you know, if you want to talk about it, we, we see a lot of techniques that just get strung up back to it. You know, it's, it's almost, you know, I always joked with the fire department being second only in tradition to the Catholic church, but <laughs> climbing in, in a lot of ways is the same damn thing. Yeah. And you know, it does, it, once you start digging into into the things you're talking about and looking into the backing for some of the things that have become standard, like talking about picking your knots based off of the strength of the knot and the percentage that that knot maintains the strength of the line that it's being used to tie. You know, you got the, everybody uses the figure eight. Everybody follow through. Everybody climbing is going to know the figure eight follow through. If you try to if you try to tie something other than a figure eight follow through at a gym in anywhere in America, you're probably going to be kicked out or corrected or taught the figure eight follow through, and it's because everybody says it's between seventy five to eighty percent of the rope's strength. Where does that number come from? I will tell you. So this is obviously one of our uh, one of our big big issues. Is what's interesting is we throughout rescue you're talking climbing. I can talk you know on the rescue side. Is that's what that, that's what's still in textbooks out there, and it's the Bolin is is you know seventy three to seventy five percent. The the figure eight, depending on you know this, this, and this is is X or you know withstands you know it's eighty percent efficiency. It maintains eighty percent strength of your of your rope. So for the viewers out there, right, anytime we tie a knot in, in webbing rope or anything, it decreases the strength of it. But what's interesting about those numbers is pretty much all of them are complete BS, man. Uh, because those numbers were taken from the late 80s, early 90s, when we were not using Kern Mantle rope. It was a regular natural fiber, manila type type rope, the old school stuff that you see all worn and, and stuff on boats and things like that. And that breaks very consistently. It breaks a very specific way when it gets overloaded with a Kern Mantle rope because you have a sheath and you have a core. You, you have two different materials in there at times, sometimes, especially in rescue. And because there's two different materials, even when you think that knot is completely tightened down, you can put a heat gun on there, or a, uh, one of those little drywall heat 
sensor things on it and watch that temperature continually go up because there's always a coefficient of friction between those two materials. And what it comes down to is that the rope actually, a current mantle rope breaks completely different than what those numbers were taken off of. And it breaks because more of a thermal type issue of where, where the stress is going on the outside of it versus the compression on the inside of the knot and with those two maneuvering together, which is pretty amazing because you have people out there manufacturing rope made out of like, you know, high modulus polypropylene, you know, Negra or, or Dyneema and things like that in their core, which on average has such a low melting point that it's it's so dangerous it's unbelievable the the thermal capabilities of those is how it brings heat in versus how it dissipates it makes it just extremely extremely dangerous and almost negligent on the company selling that stuff but yeah i just jammed in on your non-efficiency thing man that was my two cents i'm stepping out i'm dropping the mic and go go (laughs) yeah so and i guess it's a concern to me it's a it's a big concern because if we're if people are just taught to do things a certain way, and when those students raise questions like they do, especially if you've been in any of our classes and you go somewhere else to, to get some training, you're going to be taught to ask questions. And when those questions are asked, they're typically shot down in short order um, or berated mm-hmm. for even asking those questions. Why is that? Like, how are we going to personally get better if we aren't questioning things, if we don't question we're talking about today. If you don't, questioning things is where the strength comes, in my opinion, because if you can find answers to these things, like you're talking about the different the rope, different rope strengths, dynamics, the, uh, the materials being used and their effects of heat on those materials, um, in the environment they're working, they're working on those materials with, that's where you start gaining strength. That's where you start gaining fidelity. That's where you start gaining transferable skill sets. And you know, the other part of it too, when you're, when you're being taught to do something like that's what we see most of the time almost every time somebody's learning some a skill set in rope rescue access vertical access whatever you want to call it they're being taught to do something and they're not being taught they're being taught what to do and not how to do it sure yeah exactly here's the cookbook man and 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 not teaching how to how to actually cook and I, I think that's the thing is most classes, most instruction, because mountaineering and climbing and rescue is, is a high threat, high risk environment going vertical and things like that, that those curriculums are aimed at the lowest common denominator of student. And that is a problem because a lot of those people out there on assault climbing teams, vertical access teams, things like that, are not the lowest common denominator and they need to know the physics behind what they do and the material science behind what they're using to be able to one, improvise, and number two, just do their job more effectively and build a system that makes sense where your rope is articulating with your anchor strap versus your the, the scent device you decide to use and the carabiners you use and the rope grab you use is an entire system. They all work hand in hand. And when you look at a lot of these classes, it's taught at that lowest common denominator instead of understanding the application environment these guys are going to use. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes into what I like to talk a little bit about, and that's uh, gear too. So I hate to just keep hammering it. We're not naming any of these classes or these training organizations, but it's hard not to uh, not to address them because it gets us fired up. So you know, when you're when you're going and taking a class and they are teaching you how to use a set of equipment that is their equipment or somebody they know's equipment and that's it and that's the only equipment they've trained you on they haven't taught you you know the difference between a mechanical rope grab and your 
Grigri Ascender or whatever mechanical device you're using to, you know, attach yourself to the rope and lower or raise, they're doing you a disservice. So there are all kinds of different tools to use. And just because you take and paint something black or stitch some multicam to it doesn't make it tactical in nature, doesn't give you an end user capability. And that, again, I think that talking about the not teaching somebody what to think but how to think, it's so key even when you talk about gear selection. The people that we're talking and training, talking to in training, they, they're never going to just have a set of gear in the environment they're going to be in. They're always going to have different sets of organic assets. They may have no organic assets. And how are they going to use the different things that are taught in those situations? So can you use a bed sheet to rip out of a window? Um, the yeah. answer is yes, all day, every day. Um, but if all you're ever taught is you get to have your bailout kit in your cargo pocket, and that's all you're going to ever be able to repel with, now your options are to shoot your way back down the stairs or jump off the you know deal if you can't make a hasty anchor because you don't have your equipment with you instead of tearing up the bed sheets and, and wrapping off and going on your merry way. Yeah, I think you brought two good points up there. One, I think there's been a disservice to a lot of those communities because everyone that is doing something operational is constantly looking for a way to get a smaller footprint of what they're carrying, smaller, lighter more efficient but can use for a multitude of things and you know there's a uh, very popular bailout system which is a great bailout system that you see in a lot of climbing teams and they utilize it for everything from bailing out to mechanical advantages to lowering systems to you name it and it was sold to them in that in that way when in reality that that device very similar to a grigri but slightly smaller for a 7.5 rope was actually designed for FDNY, right? It, 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 there was Black Sunday that, that occurred and a couple of firefighters unfortunately lost their lives and the one that, that lived had his own bailout that he bought out with his own money. And so there was this call to action where a bunch of different companies were competing for FDNY's business to, to be able to sell that. And so they were bending over backwards because the amount of bailout kits that they would sell to that department is enormous and then how many other fire departments would would buy that same system uh, quite a few so they saw that as, as a way to push a lot of money into research to come out with what they were and what it is is it's a one-time use hook it get out of a burning building and ended up making it black with a tan rope uh, and I, I believe the other one may have been tan too it's an air mid which makes sense for firefighters but they started marketing it into special operations because it was just more money that they could make off that and so they're like oh yeah you can make a you can make a three to one off this a five to one you can use it for this and in reality you absolutely can but i could use nothing but carabiners and do the same thing with probably about as much friction as i do because at the end of that thing it's not like a grigory you there's a little u-bolt that locks it in there which adds a ungodly amount of friction into your mechanical you know your mechanical advantage making your you're three to one, almost like a 1.1 to one, some cases, depending on what rope grab you use and pulleys. So yeah, this, this thing of, hey, if we can make it black, we can sell it to these guys is proliferating everywhere, really, when you look at it. You know, then you got you know, other companies that, that don't belong making any rescue stuff, going to one company, and then you see something that's probably gonna kill somebody fairly soon with materials that, that are just ridiculous. Yeah, and you know that, the fact that somebody's life is literally on the line is what gets me pissed off the most about it. So, because we're not talking about you know the the proper tack pants to wear. You know, let's let's do the multicam. You know, patented whatever a tax whatever it is. We're talking about people putting their and others' lives on the line, literally with the gear they're going to use. And so, as instructors, it's our job to educate them 
as to what the best gear is for their application. And also thinking about the PACE methodology, primary alternate contingency emergency. You can't just have, like Sean's talking about, you can't just have reliance on one set of equipment because when you don't have that or you already use that, now what's going to happen? You know, you could do a body wrap and rappel out of a window if you have rope um, or off the bed sheets like we were talking about earlier. Uh, so you just, yeah, it just, it, I could keep going on about the gear side of it thing. I mean, it's just people making money off of other people's lack of knowledge and understanding, and it's not typically their fault. It's the fault of the people that instructed them. Right. I think it, one thing that I think is important for everybody to understand is whatever you do in climbing, whatever you do in rescue, any kind of rope-related access is firmly based in physics, right? We can put a physics equation to whatever the hell technique you do with whatever device you use and be able to tell you the efficiency. Anybody can do it, right? And I think that's something that everybody should should hold on to and, and not dive deep into every, you know, Sir Isaac Newton paper that's ever been written on moving mass and physics, but understand that in the end, by understanding that, you're going to understand your system. If you understand your system, you're going to understand what works together, what doesn't work together, and also it'll make you much better at improvising when you need to. So if I understand those components, how do I tie these bed sheets together? How do I use that extension cord to, to be able to use in X, Y, or Z? And I think that'll give you a firm grasp on what you need to do from a from an improv standpoint. And just to cut you off even more, right? Because I do that with you, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is some of the misconceptions that are out there I think are really important too, is within the climbing world, there's certain devices that just get these bad names and it goes over a blog and no one understands that there's more to it. And one of those things, I'll, I have a couple things knotted down here besides not efficiency that I've written down, uh, one being a T-block, right? Uh, T-blocks are gonna shred your rope, right? H- how many times, I mean, you get, just go onto Mountain Project, go onto any of these blogs and you're gonna find somebody that's able to tell you that. Very few times will you ever see a picture of that. But a lot of times it'll be a cut, it'll shred your rope because the teeth that are in there. And what's interesting about that is, I guess potentially it could shred your rope. And if you, if you look at our blogs on the T-block, You'll see some pictures of that where if you use the wrong carabiner with the T-block, you may have some issues, man. And those carabiners are the the more skeleton, lighter weight climbing non-lockers that you see out there. And even lockers, I guess, you see out there that have a lot of the concaves and, and all in them to, to make them lighter. When in reality, if you use, we, we use Rocco's, right? Rock Exotica Rocco's with them that have an incredible surface area. You'll see that when utilized with a T-block, the camming action of that is phenomenal. We've done load drops. We've dropped things off complete vertical and not had any shredding of our rope. A lot of times that may be more of an aramid type of static rope, which will have a little bit different characteristics than, than your typical climbing rope. But nonetheless, we've done it with climbing ropes also. And very seldomly, if you use the right equipment with it, everything is a system. So the T-block's not something by itself. The T-block is a system that combines in with the rope and a carabiner. Uh, we also see Dyneema, right? Dyneema made its big deal. You know, the Dyneema slings that are 22 kilonewton, super thin, super lightweight. And we actually, uh, you were at one of the classes too. Some guys right before us were taught by a very respectable company to, to use those things as an auto block as your backup when you're rappelling. And what's interesting about that is the one constant in anything, whether you're climbing or you're doing rope rescue, is friction. Friction's everywhere. Whether I'm blowing somebody out, I'm catching friction, not only on the device I'm using, but I'm catching friction off the windowsill or off the rooftop. I'm descending, I'm catching friction in between my descent device. That's what slows you from, you know, or 9.8 meters per second squared. That's what keeps you from free falling is that descent. So how does it do it? Does it through friction. The byproduct of friction is heat. So if we've got that, 
Dyneema as our auto block that's going down that 100 foot rappel. And there's a great video, I think it was in South America, of somebody doing that and then wanted to let go so their auto block caught, which was a Dyneema auto block, so they could wave for a picture. And the Dyneema completely split and they fell, I think, like 30 feet in, mm-hmm. luckily, into the water. But the friction that it was hitting on was too much for the Dyneema and it just melted. And I think the, what is it, the melting point for Dyneema is somewhere around, what, 250, 270 mm-hmm. degrees. But it shows that as little as 115, 120 degrees, it starts deteriorating. The ICARS, which is the international rescue group that, that's over uh, in Europe, actually has guidelines for anybody that's using Dyneema slings for their, for their anchors where you can't put it on a tarmac and you can't put it within X amount of feet from an exhaust just because that heat is enough to deteriorate that Dyneema. So we see it used in a lot of inapplicable situations. Anchor point, great, man. You know, putting it onto your pro, awesome. Putting it through where something's moving through it or it's moving across it or it's gaining friction, that's really bad. You know, same thing with uh, high modulus polypropylene, which some ropes are made out of right now. There's a group selling these ropes. That, that, that's, it's worse than Dyneema. It's not even close, it's not even a high-end fiber. Dyneema is a high-end fiber. This is mid-range at best, right? As said by, you know, people that distribute it. And I mean, the deterioration, the strength is already not good, right? You can basically get that same strength with nylon rope. And yet they're having this thing and expecting success when friction is gonna be all through it when you're doing any rescue with it. Yeah, and you know, the stuff Sean's talking about, you know, all the different specs and stats and everything on these on the equipment these are things that anybody can find out that has a connection to the internet it's not something that is limited to only the highest level of instructors in the game the difference though and this is my opinion is between somebody who is a spectator of the game and occasionally gets tapped in or somebody who's a player of the game if you want to look at climbing at vertical access as something that's going to give you um, the ability to uh, gain the objective and not just an additional you know clinic or class to go to just because you have some time to kill and some money to spend then you have the ability to really gain gain a lot of ground that you're not going to have to you know shoot your way up like easy examples you know instead of going up three flights of stairs sucking up bullets and frags on your way up or trying to get a helicopter to drop you on the roof and fight your way down a stairwell why don't you just climb up to the third balcony and uh open that open that sliding glass door and get your entire team in in less than a minute and a half those are the types of things that we're hoping people can start to see and the light bulb that turns on that really fires us up in class is when they start to understand that what we're we're, we may be training on like the area that we're training at may be a outdoor um, environment it may be climbing up a rock face but those principles that we teach you in terms of like route reading for example of looking for the path of least resistance that's also going to give you cover and concealment if needed that's the same those are the same principles that apply to you figuring out how to get up the side of a building or traverse on rooftops instead of hitting a street or going you know subterranean and uh, being able to protect yourself in those environments uh, you start to see things in a, in a three-dimensional world instead of just a two-dimensional field of space. And that's the key, I think. That's the thing that if you can grasp that, understand that, then you really start getting interested in you know the things we're talking about and uh, taking some of these trainings and learning what you can. And also questioning, you know, questioning. Like when you go to these trainings, 
and or if you're seeking a certification that's great if you're going to get certified to the ABC organization's you know credentials and that level of certification but understand that almost 100% of the time, I can say 100% of the time because nobody's doing it yet, that level of certification is going to be only in the context of guide and client. That's it. There is, there is not a current certification that you're going to get that's going to teach you and certify you and give you the holy blessing that says that now you're ready to go into all the world and do all of the things vertical. What we're proposing is the equivalent of that. It's not a certification because that ties you to a set number of rules, standards, things you have to do, but a way of thinking outside the box. I think if somebody talks, if, if you're ever being trained by somebody who speaks in like universals, you always have to do this. You can never do this. Then you just need to probably walk away, man. Just call BS and go, right? Because then they obviously don't understand the spectrum of, of the capacity that you, that you work in. And I think Lee brought up a good point is operationally, don't make it harder than what it has to be. Be able to read that route that you need. You aren't going to have the assets that you do on your climbing trip. When you've got a full rack and you've got your climbing shoes, you've got a chalk bag, and you're doing those things, that, you know, operationally, you, you've got to be really good at being able to gauge the threat. Everything is threat-based versus what, what climbing normally is. And be able to take something that we want challenging things, obviously, when we're training, but we really want to have an eye for the quick fix because you're already behind the eight ball operationally with the kit that you're having to do and 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 what you're doing in a four-man team five-man team or something like that your your techniques may be more of a slimy climbing modified this or that and to understand how to make it apply in your world you really have to know the ins and outs of just not what you're using but your techniques and material science and things like that one thing i was going to ask you that i think would be valuable is i i hope we haven't come across as totally bagging on climbing and things like that because that is the foundation if you looked at the foundational skills that that people would gain in climbing regular trad climbing what they get from from guiding and things like this what are those foundational skills that carry over not only for them operationally but also in an urban area right because you've got to be able to climb both uh, and what are those skills that permeate through both environments so whether that's hand jams or smearing or what? What do you think are those critical skills that, that a team should focus on that they probably already learn that they can actually take into the environments that they're going to use? Yeah, so um, I like to think of things in, in a natural progression. So if you're going to approach a problem, um, whether that problem that you're trying to solve is a 15-story building, elevator shaft, a rock face, a ridge line, fifth class, fourth class, third class, you know, terrain, with the potential for a you know groundfall, uh, regardless of what what you're looking at, the problem that you're looking at, I think the first thing that is transferable, no matter what environment you're in, is your ability to what, I, what we would call read that route. Try to figure out you know what is that path of least resistance. And you know when you're out and you're doing your traditional climbing on rock, that's what you're trying to figure out. You're trying to find the line. Um, you're trying to find a, a literal point of weakness in the rock, a crack typically of some sort or a space that you can use to gain access and also to protect yourself. So you're not just thinking about, you know, how am I going to get up, but how am I going to protect myself and those coming behind me? Those things are not just points of protection, but they're also there to guide the person behind you up the route because typically the first person up is going to be the strongest of your climbers on your team. That's something that, again, transfers from climbing outside to climbing the side of a building. The difference being that your placements, the gear that you're going to place, the protection you're going to put in there may be a cam on a rock. It may be you just taking in and wrapping a pre-sewn runner or a sling around a pipe on the exterior of a building. And so knowing how to find those 
spots and also how to think like that. It does take some practice and it does take you having to get used to that to be able to have that as first nature. I'm at the point now where I can't walk by a building and not have already figured out how to get up it. Whether I'm going to try it or not, I'd have to rest myself if I did, you know, is another thing. But just being able to look around your natural environment, wherever that environment happens to be, figure out what organic assets are there and be able to use them to your advantage is key, and that applies no matter what you're talking about. Other things that apply too are, are your placements, the places for you to put your hands, the grips that you're going to be using, and also the weapons and things you're carrying on your person. So if you have a bunch of stuff that you're going to have to haul up, you may end up having to have somebody go up, and you may have to drop a line and have a haul bag um, come up. That's a big wall technique. Yeah, and I think that's like the right person for the right job, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. we do that for from confined space to, to you name it, so it would be that thin spider monkey that they can climb those pipes on the way up safely, be able to anchor up top and you know, then we got an ascend rope that we can do a two to one ascend, even if we have a heavy back behind us or, you know, backpack or equipment or, you know, K-12 saw or whatever the heck we're, we're taking up with us or extra gear and then be able to ascend that much safer, right? Yeah. Well, and then, you know, then you take into consideration things like other parts of other climbing games, like aid climbing, and you bring that into the picture because I guess for whatever reason, I guess because of the way people are taught, they think that they have to climb from point A to point B without putting any weight on anything. By doing that, you're treating it as if you're trying to red point a route, you know, at the new, uh, New River Gorge. You're, that's not what you're doing. You're trying to get to the top of a spot. You're trying to gain, you know, the high ground. You're trying to figure out a better vantage point to observe your objective or you're trying to get to your objective. So the same rules don't apply. So you may, as a leader, place additional pieces of gear on there for somebody to physically pull themselves up with. Uh, you may end up having to jug haul a section with an ascender and fixed line section. So there's just a bunch of different, that's how we're starting to get into the different types of games and the other rules and how those rules don't apply. You can take the techniques used in these other types of climbing games and apply them to your environment and you com you combine them. And it's with that combination of different elements uh, that really help you start to see some ascents at some great speeds, like you're able to get up and down stuff in no time. Whereas if you're trying to just aid climb or just traditionally climb or just alpine style climb, it's going to take you, you know, the rest of the rest of that day when it could only take you an hour and a half to get a team of six up. So, so it really, if you look at it and compare that to other skill sets, some of these people may have like really accurate fast shooting, right? There's ways that they build that up to, and if they use that same template to look at it as a whole system, we got five guys, we got to get to the top of this building, this mountain, whatever, very very quickly. They can take that time through their training and understand. We know that Lee's going to be the fastest, you know, guy up the spider monkey up there. He's going to be able to create an anchor, which is going to make it safe for the rest of us who may have more gear. Then we're going to go up in this route, and then once that's up, you know, even if this guy gets in trouble, we can still haul him as Lee's going up, setting that second second route for us or, or whatever. So it, it's a mind game that you've got to think. It's a it's a chess game to get to the top, and without training effectively under the right circumstances, it's going to be hard to do that operationally. So just for some of the newer people that may be listening to this not completely familiar with some of the terms that were hit, hitting. I just kind of wrote a couple down and I have sport, like sport climbing, what that is. Probably one of the more inapplicable ones to the, the conversation we're having here. Trad, a yeah. with aid, lead climbing, yeah. what is top roping? So I, I've kind of written a few of these yeah. down, but if you can hit on, let's say, sport and trad real quick. Then yeah, we'll work so, and, and you know, we'll talk about these different things, the differences between them. It's important to note too that there's a strength, there's strengths in each of these that you can gain as a team. So for example, sport climbing. Are you ever going to just be clipping a pre-rigged dog bone 
sorry, I'm climbing from the, in the 90s, we call them dogmas. Quick draw, you know, to a pre-drilled bolt operationally. And the answer would, I, unless you're, unless you just so happen to be climbing, you know, in some really popular single pitch sport crag, and that's where your objective just happens to be, and you have to get to the <laughs> and there are bolt belay routes chains. set for you. You are good. Yeah. yeah. So you know, because typically a sport route, it's it's sport because it is not protectable, and so that is not going to be an environment that you would be climbing because it's again it's unprotectable. So you're not going to be out there with your Bosch drilling, you know, 20 bolts to gain the you know objective because everybody in the world is going to know where you're at and you're probably going to get arrested if you're in Yosemite like a friend of mine did. So that, you know, the benefit to sport climbing though is just the act of climbing. So you can gain, there's benefits to just climbing and learning the movements of climbing to make you more confident when you're climbing. You're clipping a bunch, right? Yeah, you're clipping, you're, you know, if you're leading, it gives you that sense of, um, it's protectable, but in terms of training, it'll give you that sense of leading like on trad, you'd be placing gear you know, sport climbing, all you're doing is clipping the carabiner into the bolt and then clipping your rope into the carabiner. So your pro set for you in sport and trad, you're setting it yourself. Right? Yeah, like and so active or passive. Trad is where the trad's really where the magic starts to happen in my opinion. So traditional climbing you're using mechanical um, or non mechanical pieces of gear or artificial aid to get you on the wall and protect you while you're climbing. So I say aid. Aid We'll hit that in a second. These are just things that you're going to use that are going to attach to the wall. A spring-loaded cam expands in a crack and then continues to expand when tension's pulled on its axle, and you're going to clip into that instead of a bolt. So the advantages of that are obvious. You know, those are things you're climbing. You're not going to leave a trace when you're done, which is important to me because I'm a Leave No Trace trainer. Right. You can't you be scarring. Anybody who needs a Leave No Trace certification, please contact Lee. Uh, yeah, Lee yeah. Martini. Yeah. I don't know where. We just throw burritos work. bags around, and it drives them nuts. It's good. Hippie babies die. Hippie babies die. So, yeah, and then going to aid climbing. So now aid climbing, um, in the climbing game progression, when you get to aid climbing, uh, the typical things you'll see are going to be pitons potentially hammered into the rock. You're going to start seeing tiny little pieces of gear, uh, little uh, copper heads that you're having to like hammer into the shape of the crack, which is real scary. And these pieces of gear uh, don't typically hold a lot of weight, they'll hold maybe a body's weight. And so it starts to get really scary when you start doing that. Um, but the reason why aid climbing exists is it's a, in, in aid climbers opinion, it's a more ethical approach than drilling. So you're still climbing really difficult things that you can't just jam your hand in a crack and pull. You're talking about real delicate face moves or really difficult tricky terrain and requires specialized gear. Now the difference between trad and aid is that in aid climbing you are actually putting your weight on the gear. The benefit to us as climbers that are thinking outside the box is now you start to use aid gear like a beak um, or a fifi hook, a little piece of carbon steel that is bent that you can clip into and you can hook on to say a crack or a crimper or some a type of climbing hold and you can put your weight on that. So who's to say that you're not mid-climb and you need to either return fire or turn around and check what you got. If you have and you combine traditional climbing with aid climbing, in that instance, all you have to do, you'll have it pre-rigged on your harness, is hook that on to a crack and you can spin around and uh, you're still protected and you're hanging onto the rock and you got both hands free if you need them. So that's you know a way of thinking outside the box. Ice climbing, you got you know different types of alpine climbing. There's just a lot of different other forms of climbing as well you talk about but top roping top roping is just where you're able to access the top that's what you see a lot of 
Um, so I mean, you can run up the top from behind, drop a rope, and then everybody else comes up, and that's probably the least realistic. But it does give you the ability to um, practice climbing and practice your technique, which will benefit you both in urban and natural environments. Well, so I think kind of wrapping this up a little bit is people need to ask questions on why they do what they do, I, I think, especially if that policy is brought down from someone before you, right? Is, is it even the best technique? out there. Things like really, I mean, even repelling with a munter hitch man, if you know what you're doing and how you're doing it, there's an equation that you put to that and you can figure out what the holding power is at. Munter hitches are phenomenal. The side of that is you got to be using the right equipment. We can do it obviously with our nylon ropes and things like that, but you potentially could get a glaze going and that because the melting point of the rope on rope and the friction, you're using an aramid, you use a munter hitch all day, you know, on anything bailing out as long as you're breaking in the proper way and, and the lines are parallel. So why are you doing what you're doing? And is there a better way that we could be doing it that actually is easier? Because I don't think climbing is anyone's primary job, right? Mm. It's 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 maybe their secondary, it's their specialty, secondary, tertiary job, maybe in some of these cases. So don't make it as too complex. Make it as easy as you can. And I think technical rescue it shouldn't be technical, man. It's it's really pretty easy. It's the way that people teach it that that I think makes it harshly confusing. And you see the same thing with climbing, man, especially with anchor building. It's like, I'm going to make this three-point anchor. It's complicated as hell. I mean, just, you know, go into YouTube and look at some of these things that guys teach for right out of guide school, and you're like, that is a freaking crochet project, man. That is ridiculous. I, I can't remember that shit, you know? I mean, I don't, there's not enough Adderall to make me concentrate long enough to do that. Yeah, and, you know, I guess the the point we're trying to hammer home, home is that this – it really sh- we're trying to demystify this whole thing. It's not – like Sean's saying, it's not as cryptic. It's not as hard to understand. If it doesn't make sense, then it's it probably there's a reason for that, and you might want to find out why it doesn't make sense. Um, maybe use a different method or a system. Like if the people that you're challenging are telling you to just that's that's how I was taught, and so that's how we do it, or it's because that's what I said. Those are problems, and uh, you need to really ask ask questions and, and challenge those folks. And if that happens to be us, then challenge us. We you know accept it, we embrace it, and, and that's how we all grow. That's how we get better at what, what we do. But I just it's a hope it's a hope of mine personally. People start to see the use of vertical access in these asymmetric environments as a real skill set. That's something that everybody operationally can can have an advantage, uh, can gain the advantage of. It's not just reserved for those climbing assault teams or folks that are only operating in mountainous terrain. Anybody, anywhere that is operating in an environment where there are more than single story buildings can use this, can use this skill set. Yeah, I think the, the other side of it too is before spending money on equipment, man, you really need to figure out the key performance parameters and, and the beauty of that is it shouldn't be a vendor telling you what you need. It should be you telling the vendor the exact performance parameters of what it is and if they don't have it find someone else who can get it for you so you know that may be you know my rope system needs to be lightweight hydrophobic large tensile strength large mbs you know minimum breaking strength on it maybe between the millimeter six millimeter to 7.5 millimeter or something like that for for a static rope i may need to use it for for not only descending and bailing out but i may need to also use that for for a haul system or a lower system right which is going to change the performance parameters of what you're doing but it should be that end user that looks at it and dictates what that performance
performance parameter is and not have somebody be like, oh, check it out. You know, it does this, it does this. It, you can turn it into an origami dove and you can fly away on it. It's like a pterodactyl, it's badass. And get fed this line of bull crap and then come out operationally, it doesn't make sense. So, I mean, putting those key performance parameters together beforehand and figure out, hey, let's just figure out exactly what we need and, and you can make that you can make that happen because the equipment out there now is is unbelievable. Cool. Anything else in wrapping up? Yeah, that's all I got. Man, hey, I'm done, man. I'm done. I'm out. All right, hey, uh, we're going to do another part here soon. Uh, if you have any questions, hit us up on an email. That is it. Lee, thanks for your time, bro. Thank you.